0: Welcome to media Path. I am Louise Planker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. Fritz and I have been running media scouting missions for you. We've come back with some data to share <laughs> on what you may want to watch and read this week. And here's a question that we've been delving into this week. How does a deep bass voice and a passion for gospel quartets launch a boy from Camden, New Jersey, into a Vegas stage with Elvis, and then into a legendary singing quartet whose four-part chords of magic have poured through jukeboxes, stereos, stadiums, palaces, and Air Force One. (laughs) Richard Sturban of the Oak Ridge Boys will be addressing all of that good stuff in just a few moments. But first, Fritz... What have you found for us?
1: I can't wait. An interesting life he's had from start to finish. Well, I'm going to I'm gonna do an editorial. I'm going to call an audible here and say, just if you want to feel good about humanity, if you want to feel good about your life, just watch the Olympics.
0: Not interested. What? No, You're I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> just for an hour. Just
1: watch <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, I've been just, watching. Gosh, it, it's it's a salve for your soul, isn't it? It really is. You have to watch the whole thing. Anyway, my uh, episode this week is on PBS. It's Classic Albums. Another series has been around since 1992 on various platforms like the BBC and IMDB and the Disney Channel, but I think their current run on PBS is gonna give it the greatest exposure in the United States, and I'm glad. This show takes an iconic rock album and then drills down into the making of the album, the songwriting, the collaborations, the studio sessions. Now, if you're a fan of the nuts and bolts of music, particularly rock and roll, you're gonna love this series. They interview band members for their personal memories of making the album, the producers of the album, the rock journalists who put the album in the context of rock history. This Thursday night, July 29th, they're doing Queen's A Night at the Opera. And it's important because it includes what many people feel is rock's most brilliant recording, Bohemian Rhapsody. And then in the next hour, on that same night, I think it starts at nine o'clock in your time zone, after A Night at the Opera on the 29th, will be John Lennon's Plastic Ono Band. And then Friday and Saturday, the 30th and 31st of July, they're going to do Rumors by Fleetwood Mac, one of the greatest selling albums of all time. Now, they produced 45 episodes of this series. The music that highlights various chapters in our lives tends to mean even more when we learn the details of how the music came to be. I love this series.
0: Wow. And it's on PBS?
1: PBS. And it was, it's was it been around for years, but I think PBS is its largest venue so far, which would be kind of good.
0: Okay. I will check that out. Thank you for that. That's a good tip. So I was tipped off to my first pick by my second pick, as Media Pass will have it. This is a 1972 <laughs> documentary that you will find on Hulu and on Amazon called Elvis on Tour. The doc captures Elvis on his 1972 American tour and includes rehearsals, interviews, archival, television appearances, and backstage moments. Here you will find Elvis in his most 70s Vegas-infused glory. If you are in it for the cape, there is plenty of solid cape action. There is tons and tons of high-quality performance footage featuring country, gospel, R&B, and lots of hits. You can see the famous Elvis entourage, big-time entouraging, and you will find our upcoming guests backing up Elvis on stage and in in spontaneous backstage gospel gatherings with Elvis. The film is a compelling rush of music and flash and onstage spectacle and backstage intimacy, and you get to see just how quickly and efficiently Elvis leaves the building. <laughs> this film was Elvis's final motion picture appearance, and it won a Golden Globe for Best Documentary. Elvis on tour can be found on Amazon and on Hulu. And I had never seen it, I learned about it, in my next pick which is a fantastic book by our guest, Richard Sturbin, called From Elvis to Elvira.
1: It's a great title.
0: It really is. You get the first three letters. Did you find
1: myself doing Richard's low voice just in responding to your question?
0: Yeah, I, I, I wish I could even <laughs> attempt it. But uh, Richard Sturban was a kid from Camden, New Jersey, with a keen interest in gospel quartet music. From that start point, you would not imagine that 10 years later he's sharing a stage with Elvis Presley, or that 50 years later he is about to celebrate the 40th anniversary of a song that he and his fellow Oak Ridge boys sent rocketing up the country and pop charts elvira richard is a warm and compelling storyteller you are right there with him as he scrappily pulls his gospel quartet from town to town gets called up to join the famous stamps quartet who are then hired to back elvis Within the heart of that whirlwind, Richard makes the decision to leave that surreal life chapter to join the Oak Ridge Boys, where he proceeds to build a bond, a history, and a body of work with his partners that entertained and enriched the world. I love your book, Richard. I'm a fan and I learned a lot. Please welcome Richard Sturban.
1: Yay. Richard, how are you, my man? <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're going to be outmatched.
2: I'm to you talk. You told the whole story already. There's
1: nothing oh, else Oh, no, to you've say. got great stories. <laughs> Richard, when, when you—the first—you know from the beginning of this book that you've had an ironic life, because when you think of singers who grew up in fairly strict religious households and then started their singing careers in church, you think of the South. But your family is— From Southern New Jersey, Collingswood Heights. Michael Landon went to Collingswood High School as well. It's right across the river from Philly. I felt an emotional connection with you right away because that's where I'm from. But it's a different lifestyle than you would expect. And the irony, that's fantastic. Your childhood uh, was sort of uh, grown in the first Assembly of God Church back in Southern New Jersey. Talk about those early years and your life.
2: Well, you're right. You know, the first singing that I ever did, believe it or not, was as a boy soprano. I know that's hard to believe. (laughs) And I was about six years old. And it was in that very church that you just finished talking about, the First Assembly of God Church in Camden, New Jersey. And uh, uh, like I said, I was about six years old and I was in Sunday school. And I do do remember that experience. Uh, I don't remember the song, you know, because it was so long ago but I do remember that experience of me standing in front of the congregation in church and singing. And that day, even as a boy of six years old, I was impressed that that is what I was meant to do with my life. I, I felt like I was meant to be in front of people and sing. Now I continued to singing with a high voice until I got into junior high school. And uh, when I was in seventh grade in junior high school, I still had a high voice i was singing tenor in what we called the glee club back then and uh over the summer between seventh grade and eighth grade my voice made a drastic change and boy, boy did it change and when i went back for the eighth grade year you know the choir teacher you know could not believe the difference <laughs> she ended up putting me in the second bass section and obviously i've been there ever since
0: so was it a full octave drop
2: you know, many young boys go through a period of time where their, their voice is squeaky and they talk real high and then down real low. And But it seems like, to me, it almost happened overnight. You know, like, it's almost kind of like a went to bed one one night with a high voice and woke up the next morning with a low voice. It wasn't quite that abrupt, but it kind of seemed that way back then. Uh, like just over, uh, over a couple of month period over the summer, like July and August, it made a drastic change. And in September, I was singing bass in the choir in school. So, wow. so I, I don't know that I could even tell you how big a drop it was, but it was a substantial drop in, in my voice. No question.
1: Well, it, it, what's interesting to me is your life growing up as a child you you lived a very conservative christian life where gospel and religious music were all that you were allowed to entertain yourself with am i right about that you weren't allowed to listen to the radio and pop hits or secular hits you 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 grew up on that kind of music
2: well you're right about that i grew up in church i sang in church and all the music that i was used to was was gospel music uh I grew up singing the old hymns, you know, taking the hymnal out of every Sunday morning and singing Rock of Ages, you know, and I love to tell the story, some of the old hymns of the church. So I grew up, you know, singing those songs, and they became a big part of me. And, and uh, you know, when I got to college, you know, I went to college in Trenton, New Jersey, and I, I went there and to study music. I really wanted to be a music teacher, and my, my guidance counselor at Collingswood High School that you already talked about, he recommended that I go to Trenton State College. So I went there. It's not even called that any longer. It's called the College of New Jersey or the University of New Jersey at Trenton or something like that. It used anyway, to be called Trenton there, State Teachers College. What was that now?
1: I'm sorry. no, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just remember it being called Trenton State Teachers College because when I was a kid, some people from where I lived went to school there as well. I remember they, they used to have state teachers. Teachers' colleges in New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, and elsewhere. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead.
2: They sure, they sure. Did. And there, there were several of those state teachers' colleges all over the state of New Jersey. And the, the one that I went to happened to be right there in Trent. Mm-hmm. And and if you know anything geographically about Trent, it is right across the Delaware River from Bristol, Pennsylvania. And while I was going to school there, I ran into these three other guys that kind of had the same interest in in gospel quartet singing that I did. So what we ended up doing was organizing our own group right there uh, while I was going to college in Trenton. And uh, we started singing all over the northeastern part of the country. We sang in churches. We sang in revival meetings. We sang in in summertime and camp meetings, you know, and and it, it was kind of an interesting time in my life. And while I was singing, and we called the group the Keystone Quartet, and while I was singing in that Keystone Quartet, uh, we worked some concerts with a group called the Faith Four Quartet. And believe it or not, Joe Bonzel, who's now the tenor singer and has been for years here in the Oak Ridge Boys, he, he sings the lead vocal on Elvira, you know, he was in that group. And we started working together and eventually, when there was a, a need for a membership change in our group, I approached Joe and asked him he would join the Keystone. So he left his his group, the Faith Four, and joined the Keystone Quartet. And we started singing together before either of us ever became members of the Oak Ridge Boys.
0: And that's when you moved to Buffalo.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah, I— it, we played some dates in Buffalo, New York, and we ran into some people that really kind of took us in and took us under their wing, really tried to help us out. And we felt like Buffalo would be a, a good place for us to work out of. So, so, so yes, we did move to Buffalo. And, and Joe Bonza was a part of that group as well.
0: Now, you know that I grew up in suburban Buffalo. Fritz was a broadcaster in Buffalo. So do we look vaguely familiar to you? <laughs> Where did you shop for groceries? <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, not even a little bit. <laughs> but I, I actually I lived in Kenmore, New right. York, if you know where that is. Yeah, of course. And just off of Delaware Avenue, which is one of the main just one of the main streets that, that it runs through Buffalo, you know. And you know, it was kind of interesting that you would mention that. Uh there was a there was a gentleman that was on the radio up there for years. He was called Rambling Lou, Rambling Lou Shriver. And he was he's a regular on on a buffalo radio station there and he passed away a few years ago but just this past weekend we played in a place in in lancaster pennsylvania mm-hmm. at a place called the music the, the, the american music theater and rambling lou's daughter was at the show Aww. so we actually saw her this just a few days ago so <laughs> There was a little bit of a connection there between that, you know, the Oak Ridge Boys singing in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and Buffalo, New York.
0: Yeah, and you also talk in your book about how some very uh, cool milestones happened to you at Melody Fair in in North Tonawanda. That's where you met uh, Roy Clark, or I can't remember exactly. Something, something big happened there.
2: Well, you're right about that. We, we, we were playing there. And we, we worked with Mel Tillis. Well, I remember working with Mel Tillis, and I remember working with Roy Clark. But the most important thing, beside those two things, is the fact that we met Roy Clark's manager. His name was Jim Halsey. That's when we met him. And uh, he became the Oak Ridge Boys' manager. He is still our manager today, believe mm. it or not. Mm. Jim just turned ninety years old, but he is still he is still managing the Oak Ridge Boys. And we did meet him up there playing playing in that theater in the round up there. And Jimmy <laughs> and, Dean and just outside of, of Buffalo, you know, mm. it, it was in North Tonawanda, if, if you if you can remember that name. Oh yeah,
1: no, I, I lived there. It's I, an I Indian lived name in Rain Tree Island Apartments in Tonawanda, New York, for four years. <laughs> And it's hard to convince people when they hear about the bad winters in Buffalo, what a beautiful place it is to live. The people are great. The restaurants are great.
0: Well, what do you have planned for the 40th anniversary?
2: We had big plans this year, you know, to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Elvira. We plan to spend this whole year touring and, and going all over the country celebrating the 40th anniversary of Elvira. It is hard to believe. That Elvira is 40 years old. Uh, but actually, in reality, Elvira is older than 40 years old. The song was written by a gentleman named Dallas Frazier. He is our neighbor, believe it or not. He lives not too far from where I'm speaking to you right now. He, li- he lives in a town called Gallatin, Tennessee, which is right next to Hendersonville, where I'm where I we all four Oak Ridge boys live and where I'm speaking to you from right now. But but he wrote the song. 17 years before it was ever recorded by the Oak Ridge Boys. Uh, It was, and the song was recorded like 10 times before we ever recorded it. Probably the most well-known version before ours was Kenny Rogers recording "Elvira" when he was still with a group called the First Edition? First edition, yeah. And uh, but uh, we decided to record "Elvira," and and, and it, it's our version. However, that I pe- think people recognize and will remember. And we, we actually had a hit on "Elvira" in 1981, and that's hard to believe.
1: And uh, but you were the one that put it over the top, going "Papa, Papa,
0: Papa, It's your version. That's you, man. You
1: own that song. Yeah. That's your song
0: and Joe's and Joe's lead. Oh, no, quite. You
2: cannot you cannot take Joe's lead vocal away. That is certainly a big part of the song. Uh, But you're right. The impop of my mouth is is kind of an interesting part of the song. And uh, I mentioned that Dallas Frazier wrote the song. And there's an interesting story in how he actually wrote Elvira. He was driving home from a recording session one day in Nashville with his producer and he was driving through East Nashville, he came across a street sign named Elvira Street. And that street is still there today. But he pulled right up to the street sign when he saw Elvira Street, and right on the spot, he wrote, Elvira, Elvira, my heart's on fire for Elvira. (laughs) But as he tells the story now, he then, he then wrote the giddy up umpapa papa Mau Mau part right there on the spot as well. And the, the um papa Mau Mau part imitates or mimics the bumps on the road. Oh, Elvira wow. Street had a lot of potholes, or, or as people say here in the South, chug holes. But, <laughs> but so um, the umpapa papa Mau Mau part imitates the, the bumps on the road. Oh, wow. Now... When Dallas Frazier got home that day, then he added verses about a woman so the song would make sense. <laughs> but the original inspiration for Elvira came from a street sign, Elvira Street, which is located you know, here in East Nashville and is still there today. Now, when we got into the studio, you mentioned my part on that song, our producer, Ron Chancey. He, uh, we, in fact, we called him the fifth Oak Ridge boy because he, he he produced just most of the number one records we had in our career. When we got into the studio, it was his idea for me to do the giddy up, um, pop, mama um, uh, part. <laughs> so I took that line and kind of, I, t- I took it and I adapted it to my way of doing things, you know. Mm. And uh, and I guess it turned out okay. It's <laughs> the part
1: everybody looks because, forward
2: to, you know. It's probably the most well known bass line in the music business.
0: Do people walk up to you and sing that?
2: They do. Uh what I get quite often is people always say, Give me a sample of that, <laughs> um papa, um papa, mouth. <laughs> they want you to sing <laughs> but, it. But you know, you know, the most fun thing for me. Now we still do that song. We cannot do a show without Elvira. It is a must. You know, and if you come ever come to see the Oak Ridge boys, you are going to hear Elvira. And yes, you're going to hear me do Giddy Up, Oom Pop Um. But the biggest, biggest kick I get out of doing that song is when I get to that part to look out in the audience and see all the men, you know, trying to sing Oom Pow <laughs> along with me. I always get a big kick out of it.
1: And, you know, that song was uh, uh, it was one of the greatest crossover hits of all time, right? Because I don't know if it started on the country charts, but it became a top 40 hit. Did you ever have a record that crossed over like that so easily in your careers after that hit, you know, crossed over to the pop charts?
2: Well, that was the first one for sure. And it, it became the biggest record in country music that year, 1981. And it also became one of the largest records in the total music business that year. And it it was also a number one pop record as well. Mm -hmm. Now, a few years later, we were able to follow that up with another song that accomplished almost the same thing for us. As Elvira, but not quite. A song called Bobby Sue. Uh right to the bu- 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 Bobby Sue. It mm-hmm. uh it know, it, it was the number one country record, and it made it into the top ten on the pop charts. So it 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 accomplished almost the same thing for us, wow. you know, that Elvira did.
0: Could you talk for a moment about the push-pull between straight-up gospel and the goal of reaching more people through country music? You met with a ton of angry resistance, and I'm thinking that this might be mostly people who were working really hard to avoid secular music, and you may have seemed like a a Trojan horse to them at at a show.
2: Well, you know, we, when I first joined the Oak Ridge Boys, the Oak Ridge Boys were probably one of the very top Southern gospel quartets. The group was dominating all the awards they call the Dove Awards. And and, uh, and we, we were riding along, feeling pretty good about what we were doing. But we felt like we wanted to accomplish more. We felt like we did not want to be as marginalized as we were. And we we wanted to reach more people with our music. And I told you, you know, a a very important thing happened to us, you know, in North Tonawanda, New York. We met Jim Halsey. It was his leadership and his guidance. He talked us into, you know, to uh, trying to sing country music as well as gospel. He said, you guys are an amazing act he said, but you're three minutes away from being a major, major act in the music business. And so he, got, he, he went to work and he actually signed us to our first recording contract, which was ABC records, which later became MCA records. He acquired Ron Chansey, as our producer. I already mentioned Jeron's name earlier. He became our producer and we started having hit records with Ron Chansey. And so we were able to uh to uh increase our outreach you know and yeah was, some people criticized us and people thought we were going to be we we're being too worldly you know by singing country music they wanted us to stick to strictly gospel music but it's kind of an interesting thing you know once we became successful in country music all those gospel music fans came back over to our side anyway so so it turned out okay mm-hmm. and one thing you know we doing all country music success that we have had we have also never turned our back on gospel music because we still love that form of music as well. So we we feel honored that we can do both. You know, we are now in the Gospel Music Hall of Fame as well as the Country Music Hall of Fame, and they both kind of go hand in hand. They really do.
1: I, I love your stories um, because I love the early sufferings in show business. <laughs> I just relate to that the most. But you have great stories about being on the road as gospel quartet and how competitive that was, but how little you were actually paid. I mean, in your book, you talk about getting maybe 100 to $200 total for a gig for four guys, for four guys, having driven there, you know, in the car. And it really was a meager existence and hard to make a living. And you had a wife and two kids at home at the time.
2: Well, you are correct about that. And it it was a difficult way to to, to, to try to have to live. And I I might people who are watching, though, I might want to say that never happened with the Oak Ridge boys. Mm -hmm. When I joined the Oak Ridge boys, the Oak Ridge boys were one of the top groups in Southern gospel music and already making a pretty decent living. Those real difficult days were back when I was singing in the group that I helped organize in Trenton, New Jersey, you know, the Keystone Quartet, mm-hmm. we would work churches. And sometimes there was not a hundred dollars in the offering, you know, but we had to spread that out between four guys. So it was a difficult time. No question about
0: it. And then all of a sudden you get called up to the stamps, you had to leave Joe, not knowing that you would eventually reunite with Joe, but you got called up to the stamps and all of a sudden you're on a stage with Elvis. What did that feel like?
2: Well, first of all, that was mind boggling. It really was. <laughs> I was, I happened to be in, in the right place at the right time. I was living in Buffalo, New York at the time and J.D. Sumner called me up. He personally did not call me, his son-in-law did, but he, his son-in-law told me that J.D. Sumner wanted to get off of the road, and he wanted to devote his time to businesses he had on the side, like he had a publishing company, he had a talent agency, and other things he wanted to do on the side, and he wanted to hire a younger bass singer to take his place, so he offered me the job. That involved me, involved me having to move to Nashville. So that's how I got to live here in Nashville. And I was with J.D. and the Stamps probably about six months when J.D. Sunder got a phone call from Elvis. Elvis and J.D. were friends, having both lived in the Memphis, Tennessee area. And Elvis was looking to hire a new backup group. The group he had had a conflict could not be a part of his tour he was about to take. So he wanted to hire a new backup group and he hired JD and the Stamps. So I would happen to be there at the time. So here I I am, a young man in my twenties, all of a sudden I find myself on stage with the biggest star in the world. Back Mm -hmm. then, I believe it in my heart, Elvis was the biggest star in the world. Oh yeah, His tour was the biggest tour in the music business and to be a part of it was very, very exciting. You know, I have some great memories of the time that I spent with Elvis. I I got to know Elvis just a little bit, and it was a very, very special time in my life. And now that a lot of years have passed, and I look back on that, you know, I'm so glad I was able to experience it because it because it was a great time in my life. You know, and you mentioned, you know, in your intro, hey, how, how, how much Elvis loved gospel music, you know, as well as he did rock, you know, he was the king of rock and roll. No question. But I really believe deep down inside, his favorite music was gospel music. And some of my fondest memories of being with Elvis involved singing gospel songs. One of his favorite things to do when we were on tour was to try to find a piano somewhere. And he would get all the members of the Stamps Quartet that I was a part of to get around the piano with him. And we would sing gospel quartet songs. And he especially loved the black spirituals, and we would do a lot of that as well. So, so, so some of my fondest memories of being with Elvis involve actually singing gospel music. Mm-hmm. But it was a great time in my life, and as lo- as I look back on it, I'm so thankful that I was able to experience that. And that was just prior, of course, to joining the Oak Ridge Boys. Right.
0: And I think gospel is a a comfort to Elvis. Like that's his home. Mm-hmm. That's where he feels like is his like his compass points to. And that and you guys offered that comfort for him.
2: And, you know, one of the, you know, one of the biggest, uh, when I was working with Elvis, I was only with him for about a year and a half. And one of the biggest songs he did every night in his concerts, even in Las Vegas, was How Great Thou Art. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, he did all of his, his records, you know, uh, which and, and the women were hollering, screaming, of course. But. The highlight, I think, of his show every night was when he did How Great Thou Art. First of all, when he went into the, You could almost hear a pin drop, you know? And then you could tell that he believed in that song so strongly. It was... I mean, you could feel it. You know, it was, it was a very special time. So it was, while he was the King of Rock and Roll, I really believe deep down inside, he loved gospel music.
1: And, and you guys, you and Elvis, um, um, had parallel... Um, Enthusiasms when you were younger about the blackwood brothers. You both grew up loving their style and loving their music, right?
2: There's no question about it. One of the one of the first gospel chord records I ever owned was by the Blackwood Brothers. And JD Sumner was singing bass on that record. Oh. And I'll never forget playing that record. And I was so fascinated with that bass voice. It, it was something that, that was really, really very, very, very special, you know, and something I'll never forget. And and I think, you know, the fact that Elvis and JD were friends it is a very important thing because when JD Sumner was a member of the Blackwood Brothers, they sang at Elvis his mother's funeral, which was there in Memphis, you know, Tennessee. And because of that, Elvis had a very Special, special place in his heart for J.D. Sumner. Mm-hmm. So I think that is a factor in, in, in how I ended up singing with Elvis myself.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, in turn, you guys have performed at some in some very powerful, beautiful, meaningful moments at at, at some funerals, including those of uh, June Carter and, and Johnny Cash.
2: Well, there's no question about it. I think one of the most difficult things we've ever had to do, you know, was was to sing at June Carter's funeral. And I'll I'll explain to you why it was a difficult thing. Uh, Johnny Cash was still alive back then. And I could, we could spend hours, you know, we've already talked about influential Elvis was to me personally, but Johnny Cash was very influential in the, then the success of the Oak Ridge boys. And I don't think there would be an Oak Ridge boys today. If it was not for Johnny Cash, he was a special person. Uh, but, uh, At June Carter's funeral, Johnny Cash was sitting... Right in front of her coffin there in the front of the church. And I'll never forget we got up on the stage and we started to sing. Uh, I I I think it was farther along, an old hymn that, that that Johnny Cash loved. And while we were singing it, immediately Johnny Cash reached for the tissues and he was crying and we were standing there right in front of him, trying to keep it together. Oh, so it, so it really was one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do, you know. And I think all the all the Oak Ridge boys would say it was a tremendous honor, but at the same time, a very difficult thing. No question about it. The only thing that would even come close to that is just a few years ago when we were honored to sing at the funeral of President Bush. That that was also mm-hmm. a, a very difficult thing to do.
0: And he was a very important person in your lives, President H. W. There's
2: no question about it. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a great story if I have time to tell it. You do. Uh, we, we first met George Bush many years ago when he was the vice president of the United States. Ronald Reagan obviously was the president, and, and George Bush was the vice president. Ronald Reagan invited the Oak Ridge Boys to sing on the lawn of the White House at the congressional barbecue. It's something they do pretty much every year where all members of Congress come put their political differences aside and just sit on the, on the on the lawn of the White House and have a time of fellowship and, and eat barbecue and listen to some good entertainment. And in the case of, of Ronald Reagan, it was always country music because he loved it. But anyway, he, he hired the Oak Ridge Boys, invited us to sing there on the lawn of the White House. I remember that day, that afternoon, we were doing a sound check, a rehearsal, on the stage that they had set up on the lawn of the White House. While we were doing the sound check, this tall gentleman came walking across the lawn of the White House. And by the way, while we were doing the soundtrack, you could kind of look around and you see the White House, you see all the beautiful green grass and all the tall buildings there in Washington. And you knew, first of all, this was not going to be a normal day. And it, ro- <laughs> it, it ended up not being. But while we were doing the sound While we were doing the sound check, like I said, this tall gentleman came walking across the lawn. He came up on the stage. He introduced himself as Vice President George Bush. He did not have to do that. We recognized him immediately. But he proceeded. He proceeded to tell us right there. that He told us, fellas, I'm a big fan, but I cannot be at the show tonight. He said, I've got to fly somewhere on some official vice presidential business, he says, but I am a big fan, I promise you. Would you guys be willing to do me a couple of songs right here, right now? And we said, sure, Mr. Vice President, (laughs) what would you like to hear? And and I think we realized that when he he answered us, we realized he was telling us the truth. He was a big fan. He started naming Album cuts. He started naming what the kids call today deep cuts—not <laughs> not songs that were hits or singles. So he, we were convinced that he did know our music, that he was familiar with our music. So right there on the spot, that afternoon on the lawn of the White House, we proceeded to give Vice President Bush a mini concert.
0: <laughs>
2: that afternoon, we established a friendship. We established a friendship with him that lasted until he passed away. The the whole time he was in the White House as president of the United States, we sang for him on several occasions. We got to know Barbara Bush as well. They were two of the most wonderful people you will ever want to meet. Put politics aside. It has nothing to do with politics. They were just very wonderful people, and we got to become very good friends with them. And uh, even after they left the White House, we would sing for them quite often. We would go... And, and he, being from the Northeast, you may not be aware of this place as well. We would go on many summer times to Kennebunkport, Maine, where they they have a summer home there, and we would we would kind of hang out for, for two or three days, go fishing with President Bush, and we would always give him many concerts in his living room, and of course he would invite the neighbors over. You know that he that, that, that he had to do that, and but. Every time we performed for him, he always requested his favorite song, and that was Amazing Grace. That was by far his favorite song, that hymn. And uh, not too long before he passed away, he asked us if we would sing Amazing Grace at his funeral. And we said, Mr. President, you can count on us. Uh-huh. We, regardless, of whoever we are, we will be there. Mm-hmm. Wow. We had no idea that we were going to be in Spokane, Washington. (laughs) Believe it or not, we were doing our Christmas tour and we were in Spokane, Washington. We did a Christmas show, which lasted about two and a half hours. After the show, went directly to the airport, got on a private jet that was donated to us by a very dear friend who we will forever be indebted to. We flew to Houston, got there just in time to go to the church, uh, go to the hotel, get a quick shower, then go to the church. There we we met George W. Bush and Jeb Bush, pre- members of the Bush family. They thanked us for being there. Our good friend Reba, she was there as well because she sang at the funeral. But we sang at the funeral, and then, at, which was a very emotional experience to say the least, after the funeral, went directly back to the airport, got on the private jet again, and flew back to a place called Kennewick, Washington, mm-hmm. and did another Christmas show that night. Wow. We we did all of that in just a little over 24 hours with no sleep, oh my <laughs> and wow. we did not miss a date in the process, oh. but the most important thing by far, we kept promised to President Bush. He always taught us to do the right, and that was the right thing to do, certainly.
1: That's amazing. I, before we get too far away from what you brought up, I really think one of the most touching parts of the book, Richard, was you describing how supportive Johnny Cash was of you. You used a great line in there. He hired you, and he paid you more than you were worth. But also, he would give you guys pep talks when you were down about yourself. Talk about that relationship with Johnny Cash.
2: I'd love to talk about Johnny Cash. As I said earlier in the interview, I do not believe there would be an Oak Ridge Boys today if it was not for Johnny Cash. He was a special person to the Oak Ridge Boys, not just the Oak Ridge Boys. He he was so good to a lot of young artists, but especially the Oak Ridge Boys. He and his wonderful wife, June Carter, that kind of took us under their wing, so to speak, and it really helped us out in our early struggling days. Johnny Cash actually booked us on some of his shows. And I what I said earlier is, is absolutely correct. He always paid us more than we were really worth, to be very honest with you. Whenever you work, work a date, you sign a contract, he would always pay us more than the contract that amount. Uh, and kind of give, he always kind of gave us a tip, if you would. And mm-hmm. But that's the kind of person he was. He was always very special. And I remember working with him in Las Vegas. Believe it or not, the same theater or uh, casino that I played when, when I sang with Elvis, the Las Vegas Hilton. But uh, we were working there. And after that engagement with, with uh, Johnny Cash, we had no other dates booked. We did not know how we were going to continue as our group. We didn't know exactly what we were going to do. We were kind of very discouraged. And Johnny Cash could sense that we were discouraged. And I remember he called us all up and he said, "Fellows, I can tell you your heads are hanging. He says, I want to talk to you guys. He said, come to my room. So all four of us, one afternoon out in Las Vegas, we went up to Johnny Cash's room. And he said, fellas, I can tell, you know, you, you, your heads are hanging. You're discouraged. He said, but I also can tell there's something very special about you guys. He said, there's, there's magic somewhere between the four of you. He said, so what I want you guys to do, he said, I want you to find a way to stay together. He said, if you give up now. No one else will ever know how special you guys are. He says, "I know it. You guys know it." He said, "But no one else knows it." So we want—I want you to stay together. And if you do, he says, "I promise you, good things will start happening to you." He said, "I will do my best to help you as much as I can financially," which he did. Always gave us extra money. He said, "But you are still going to have to try to find a way yourself." to stay together and and to kind of make this long story short obviously we did find a way to stay together Mm -hmm. but i remember that day walking out of johnny cash's room instead of our heads hanging we our heads were up high we all looked at each other and we said wow if johnny cash thinks we can make it we are going to make it and sure enough shortly thereafter that we As I talked earlier, we met Jim Halsey, who became our manager. He signed us to our first recording contract. We acquired Ron Shansy as our producer. We started having hit records. And just a few years later, after that meeting with Johnny Cash, we won our first CMA award for the vocal group for vocal group of the year from, from the country music association. And I remember that day when they announced our name running up on stage and instead of going to the podium on the left side of the stage to accept our award we ran to the right hand side of the stage where Johnny Cash was standing because he was hosting the show and we all hugged his neck and i'll never forget he said in that big booming voice of his he said see fellas i told you so <laughs> so he was right and so so i think more than it more more than his financial help which we certainly needed his words of encouragement really th- th- those words really helped us get through a difficult time in our lives
0: have wow. you have you passed that on to a- any 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 group coming up that you really saw their potential before they were out out of their discouraging period because i know it takes at least 10 years of slogging it out before you start to really make ends meet right you
2: know we've we've had a we had an interesting experience here this last couple of years mm-hmm. there's a there's a group out there they're an a cappella group. You may or may not have heard of them. They're called Home Free. Yes, they are a great bunch of young guys and they give us credit for inspiring them to want to do what they do. They are a real credit to our business. And a few years ago they decided to, uh, since they're big fans of ours, they decided to record Elvira of all songs and, mm-hmm. and they called us up and they said, uh, would you guys be willing to sing on Elvira together with us? We said sure. You know, we were always glad to help a young up and coming artist. Sure. We would be glad to do it. So I remember that day going to the studio and all day long, just hanging out with those four, the four older guys hanging out with four young guys. And we had such a great time and we had so much fun recording Elvira and They have a a young bass singer named Tim. He, I remember, we had like a friendly bass singing competition (laughs) between the two of us, kind of bouncing back and forth with Mountain Mouse. And it was a lot of fun. It really was. Just a few weeks later, they called us up again. And they said they were gonna shoot a video on the show. They asked us then, would you guys be willing to shoot the video with us? We said, sure, we'd be glad to. And once again, we spent all day in the studio shooting a video with those guys. You got to know them even a little bit better, and uh, you know they give us a lot of a lot of credit for inspiring them to want to do what it is that they do. And like I said, they're a real credit, uh, you know, and, and an inspiration in our business now. So you know we've had a lot of time, a lot of fun getting to know them.
0: Mm-hmm. That's cool to know that you've had that influence on young artists, and I know you have like a thousandfold. Now I know that you have a lot of interests. Like in your book, I I'm going to just list. You've got a lot of really keen interests, which include music, baseball weather wine the beach bicycling fashion did you know Richard that you are in the presence of a man who was uh, the Los Angeles weather man for 39 years here in Los Angeles on on, on KNBC so if you two want to just chat weather for a few minutes and nerd out I will just
1: oh yeah we'll right blow over. people out of this podcast so fast <laughs> I did the weather for NBC in Los Angeles for 40 years. Richard, so I was interested to learn that you're a weather enthusiast. Although down there in Hendersonville, you get some real weather. I was wondering when we learned that you were from Hendersonville, were you near any of that river flooding that happened down there that was really catastrophic a couple of years ago?
2: Oh, there's no doubt about it. We had some serious flooding here in Nashville, and you know, being a Weather Channel junkie as I am, <laughs> you know, I, over the years I got to to be a, a big fan jim cantori and i know you know who i'm talking mm-hmm, about yep. on the weather channel and there's a running joke among people who are fans of the weather channel that if you turn the weather channel on and you see jim cantori there and he is in your hometown you <laughs> better be you better, you better be very careful things <laughs> are
1: not so well start packing i know he's the one that started the whole thing of Putting the weather guy outside and seeing how close to death they can make him yeah. come for the ratings.
2: <laughs> well, I you know I remember him being sta- standing here right by the, by the the flooding river in downtown Nashville, and that was not a pleasant thing. So so in that that case, Jim Cantore being here was a good
0: thing. Pretty scary, pretty scary. Now you talk in your book about reinvention how you built a sustainable career by retaining your core while remaining fluid and being open to change. This is difficult enough for a solo act, but how do you make group decisions about new and unique opportunities?
2: Well, you know, we we try to operate our group in a very democratic way. You know, each man's opinion is very important. And very rarely will we do something, whether it's business-wise or musical-wise, as far as, you know, the the material recording unless all four of us agree if we because we've we've learned from experience if just one guy does not like what we're doing it's going to affect the project or the business decision that we're making so we've learned over the course of the years to uh to uh you know make sure that each guy is happy with whatever we're doing you know each guy in our group is different each guy in our group didn't bring something to the table Mm -hmm. uh and, but I think that's a big part of the appeal of our group. And, and I think w- we learned a long time ago to respect that difference between the four of us. And I think we also realized a long time ago that we need each other. So we pull together as a team. We're, we are a true brotherhood. And, I, and we've become a, the very best of friends over the course of the years. So I think that friendship, that special relationship that exists between the four of us is, is, is very, very important to the success of the Oak Ridge Boys. And I think it's a key factor in, in our longevity that we've been able to experience.
1: You you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that you guys had done a gig somewhere recently. Are you starting to open up a little bit post-pandemic bookings picking up for you? How are things looking?
2: The answer to your question is yes. We are working dates again. We had a great experience about six weeks ago. As you probably know, we are members of the Grand Old Opry. And we, over the course of the years, we have played the Opry several times. We became members of the Opry in 2011. During the, during the pandemic, we played the Grand Old Opry several times with no audience, no house audience at all. And that was a strange situation. I, you know, I, I think we realized doing that, how important an audience is, a live audience is to a show. We were booked about six weeks ago on the first opry show where they allowed 100 capacity and i'll never forget the feeling the oakridge boys had when we walked out on the stage and we saw that full house of people boy what a great feeling that was and i think we realized that night that you know i think we're turning the corner on this thing and things are going to be getting better We have played several dates since then, and we've had some great crowds. People are coming out to see us in large numbers, and, uh, you know, I think people are ready to get out. People are ready to hear live music again. That makes us feel very, very good. Uh, From now from the 1st of August through the end of the year, we are going to be very, very, very busy. We're going to be traveling all over the country, celebrating 40 years of Elvira, and taking our brand of country music to people all over, and we're very excited about the chance to be able to do that again. So, yes, we're we're performing again, and we're very excited about it.
1: You know, I listen to uh, those Opry shows on Sirius XM, Channel 59, Willie's Roadhouse, where they broadcast live at the Grand Ole Opry. And at first you're thinking, how are they going to do this with no audience? But the intimacy of it and, and the, the rich quality of the voices, there were some great shows. Your shows, Vince Gill did it a couple of times. There was a real intimacy. It was like just you and the music. And I guess they were so happy with the way that ended up sounding Uh, The rumor is they're going to put out albums, live recordings of those pandemic sessions at the Grand Ole Opry, and I bet they're going to sell very well.
2: You're probably right. You know, the Grand Ole Opry is a special place. There's no two ways about it. When you walk through the door of that building, you can feel history. It's very, very special. And, you know, and now, you know, and, and we played the the opera many times before we were members and we always enjoyed playing the Opry. Uh But now when we walk through the door as members and we look on the wall, we see our name on in, in bronze there on that plaque next to all the other artists. And it really makes us feel like we're family, like we belong there. Mm-hmm. So it is a special place. And uh, on the center of the stage at the Grand Old Opry House, they have a circle. And it's a circle from the old floor of the old Ryman Auditorium in downtown Nashville, the original Grand Old Opry. And every time the Oak Ridge Boys play the Grand Old Opry, the four of us make sure that we stand in that circle because it's a very special place because Mm -hmm. there's so much history in that building. Mm -hmm.
0: May it be unbroken. Hey, Mm -hmm. I don't quite understand why it took until 2011 for you guys to become members.
2: You know, that question has been asked many times and we're not so sure why it took so long ourselves you know but i think the most important thing is that it did happen you know the timeline you know you can question the timeline but that's not the most important thing we're, we're, we're thankful now that we are members because it is a very special thing and then just a few years later uh we then became members of the Country Music Hall of Fame. And what a special place that is as well. I mean, it's beyond words to describe how special it is, you know, to be a member of the country music. So, uh, and and the Opry and in the, in the, in the Hall of Fame, they kind of go hand in hand, they mm-hmm. really do. And, and I remember how we found out that we were gonna be members of the Hall of Fame, we were actually playing at the Grand Ole Opry. After we finished one of our songs, we we listened to the applause, you know, that that people always applaud very well with the Opera, but then the applause kept going on. It continued, and we couldn't figure out why. <laughs> and we looked around and little little Jimmy Dickens came walking out on the stage, who's a long member, long time member of of, of the Grand Old Opera. He was dressed as William <laughs> Lee Golden. He had his big cowboy <laughs> hat on, he had dark sunglasses. He had a long fake gray beard and <laughs> he came out there. And I think Joe said, uh, little Jimmy, you look like you could be one of the Oak Ridge boys tonight. He said, well, I'll tell you what, fellas, I'm going to, not only am I going to be one of the Oak Ridge boys, but you guys are about to become the newest members of the grand old Opry that hit us totally by surprise. Uh-huh. And we looked at each other. I don't think any of it was very emotional. I don't think, It was a dry eye in the group because it really is a very special place. Nice,
0: oh, that's just wonderful. You know, you talk about deep cuts. I don't know if this is deep cut or not, but my favorite song by the Oaks is uh, it's called "Come On In." You did the best that you can do, and I just play that song when I need to be kind of lifted. And the lyrics are beautiful, and it's just like, do you know which song I'm talking about?
2: I, I certainly know the song you're talking about. And I think, you know, I think that's a that's a perfect example. Come on in. You're the best you could do. I think it's a perfect example of a typical Oak Ridge Boys song. Yeah. Over the course of the years, we have always tried to sing about good things in life. We tried to sing about wholesome, positive things in life. And I think that's a perfect example of that. You know, we, we've shied away from uh, cheating songs and getting drunk and that sort of thing and tried to sing about long-lasting relationships a relationship with the, with the good lord above and good wholesome things and we try to encourage people along the way and help people with our music along the way i think we've been able to do that and i think the song that you're talking about is a perfect example of that that kind of a song that the oak ridge boys like to record
0: yeah i just love it and i love your music and i've, I've just been a fan all my life it's, so, it's just a it's such an honor to talk to you and i I just want to thank you so much for being with us. I'm going to read our closing credits. Is there anything else that you.
2: Let me briefly mention one thing that we didn't cover. Uh, I just so happen to have in my hands. I guess (laughs) guess you can't say
1: it. uh,
2: We just came out. We just came out with a new album.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: It's called front porch singing. And (laughs) uh, one of the good things that happened during the pandemic was that we were able to go into the recording studio and record a new album. Uh, We are now being produced by Dave Cobb. If that name rings a bell, it's because Dave Cobb is one of the hottest guys in Nashville right now. He's very, very much in demand, and he's produced four projects on the Oak Ridge Boys. During the pandemic, even the recording studios were shut down, And, and then they opened up. And, and, and Dave Cobb, our producer, called us and he said, I, I'm ready to record. You know, we had planned to record earlier in the year, but we off because of the pandemic. But Dave Cobb said he was ready to record and said, What I want to do is, I want a feeling of as kind of just gathering on a front porch in a very informal, unstructured way, and just four guys gathering and just harmonizing and singing together. And we were able to do that with Dave Cobb. He's a master at capturing feelings like that. He's a master at taking old songs, making them sound new and fresh. And uh, we were able to do that with Dave Cobb. We found some great old songs, familiar songs that people can sing along to. We found some great gospel songs. That We grew up singing from the time we were little kids in church and in Sunday school. And then Dave Cobb has a relationship with some of the new young songwriters here in Nashville. We've recorded a couple of brand new country songs written especially for the project as well. But it turned out very well. It's very inspirational. It's very uplifting in nature. It's the kind of music we really need to hear right now. And I think it's important to note that it's called Fun Porch Singing, not sing-ing with a G, singing. There is a difference. And, and we're very proud of the way it turned out. And it, it, it's, I think it's, it's a must listen for Oak Ridge Boys fans.
0: Oh, absolutely. I'm getting it right now as soon as we get off here. Thank you so much, Richard, for being with us. We really, really Thank you, Richard. A great
1: us. conversation.
0: Here come the closing credits. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter where we are at MediaPathPod. Well,
2: thanks to Thanks. To of you.
0: Bye. Thank you. And on Facebook, where we are Media Path Podcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. We would love to know what media you've been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or email us at Media at gmail.com. We want to thank our wonderful guest, Richard Sturban. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco Demanda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Alex Gilroy, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Planker here with Fritz Coleman. And we will see you along the media path.
1: And if you enjoyed this episode of Media Path, it would help us a lot if you would help us be more discoverable by potential new listeners. If you leave us a quick review, do it on Apple Podcasts. And if you're new here and this is your first time with us, please check out our back catalog. You may even find us binge-worthy. Bingeworthy. That's my Richard voice. <laughs> uh, recent episodes include, you know, Diane Warren, Bill Moomey, all kinds of people who are stalwarts in their industry, like Bill Medley and, and Richard Sturban. We're, we're, we're so honored to have all of them. Gary Puckett, the Cowsills. Going back to the very beginning, you'll hear some exciting and exclusive interviews with Henry Winkler and Keith Morrison. Thank you for spending this hour with us, and we would be overjoyed if you took a moment to share your thoughts with us or recommend us to a friend. Be safe.